Hey everyone, before we get started with the interview, I wanted to first apologize for the first minute of audio as I made a rookie mistake with my new Zoom equipment and forgot to start recording at the beginning of the podcast. Secondly, if you haven't yet, be sure to check out podcast episodes 13, 14, and 15. All the money I receive from those podcasts goes toward an RBT fund, which has been set up to help colleagues for those that are in need during this time. Currently, there are almost a thousand individuals who have signed up and need help. Astonishingly, they already have over 203 givers. You can find more information regarding the RBT support fund on Instagram at that underscore analytic underscore girl or Instagram or go to the Behavior Trap podcast on Instagram. We can make a difference. All right, let's roll the intro music. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Behavior Trap podcast featuring your host, Alan Lowe. The Behavior Trap Podcast is an interview-based format show that features everyday ambitious behavior analysts that are currently working towards getting their certificate, or already have one. I believe every behavior analyst is making a difference. And well, I want to hear how they got there, what school was like, what they would do differently, and finally, what they're doing now. Hey, Laura, how are you? I'm good. How about you? Well, I'm not quarantined, so I say things are going pretty good. How about yourself? We're not quarantined yet. We're still considered essential, so so far so good. <laughs> Where are you from? Originally, I'm from Venezuela. Um, I was born there and moved to the U.S. about 15 years ago, and so yeah, been oh, offering again ever since. <laughs> that's sweet. How did you end up living where you are now? Is it family or? Yes, yeah, so um, my mom got transferred from her job from Venezuela to the U.S. when things started getting rocky over there for the government. So we moved to Florida um, and pretty much stayed within the same area for Florida. And I've moved around inside Florida, but come back to, you know, Florida area. When you were in Venezuela, did anything like what's happening today happen over there with like the coronavirus or COVID-19? Did anything similar happen over there? Um, we've always had like those dengue, I don't know how to say it in English, I guess it is dengue, like pandemics from the mosquito bite. Um, but it's never been, you know, this way where you cannot leave your house or go to work or, you know, everybody needs to stay home. I've never lived through something like this ever. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely been pretty interesting. Have you went to the grocery stores or anything? What's it like where you are now? So I've been there and it's, it's, it's. To me, it's surreal how things are not on the shelf um, and there's a line for everything. Um, right now in Venezuela, actually, that's just how the weight is because there's so much inflation that, yeah. you know, there's not people producing things. So there's always the empty shelves. So to me, it's surreal seeing the U.S. in that sense. Um, but, you know, it, in Florida, we're kind of used to it, not to this degree, but we're kind of used to it at every hurricane season. Things, you know, people panic shop, so we do see some items not, you know, being overly bought, but nothing like, I feel like this pandemic right now. Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and get started with the podcast. Okay. Thanks for giving me a little information about about yourself. I noticed you have an accent, so I was trying to figure out what it was. I just couldn't put a finger to it. I know I'm trying to to be better at it because you know we work with children and you know I feel bad like I don't want you to learn the accent <laughs> version of the word. <laughs> oh, you're fine. So, what got you to behavior analysis and what's your backstory for getting into the field? 
So I've always liked to work with children. I feel like when I started uh, undergrad, that was kind of like my main focus. I wanted to be a teacher, elementary, um, special ed even. But then as I took more classes, I was like, this is not it for me. You know, I, I just didn't feel connected to the education program. And so I changed my major five different ways too. Um, and then I saw, I took a class for psychology and honestly fell in love with it completely. Um, and so I changed my major to psychology, did my undergrad. And on my last semester, I did this internship for a summer program where it was directed by a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist, and then the behavior analyst. And I just remember loving all of the sessions that the BCBA had because I saw immediate results. Like she would try a different strategy and immediately the child responded a different way. And so it was reinforced and now the child was no longer crying anytime that you presented something and little things like it was just anytime a drop off. So like for the first week it was horrible. And then immediately like one day she introduced a new strategy and boom, perfect every day ever since. So that's where I saw um, behavior analysis and I fell in love with it. And so I did more research on what programs I should do, what can I do to get the certificate and things like that. So you said uh, five different programs. What were some of the programs that you looked into before you fell in love with behavior analysis? So at one point I did business. Then it was history. I wanted to be a historian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. I think at one point I also did architecture. Um, What was another one? can't remember now, but I remember switching and my mom was like, you need to make up your mind. You need to choose a major and just go with it. <laughs> so then I took the psychology class and I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to be. <laughs> you could throw some history and behavior analysis. I mean, you have Skinner, you have Watson, you have Pavlov. Like, you could do some oh, no, history. Of but have you ever taken a history class? It was horrible. All the things that you needed to remember and specific <laughs> things to remember. <laughs> I believe in undergrad, I took one class called European European civilization and it was a tough one yes I remember failing and just because I couldn't remember all the dates straight and I would get them confused and it was just like I I would love to listen to history sessions but not test for them (laughs) awesome well sounds like you found your calling then yes no I did I did ever since I took psychology I never went back to it loved it was there a certain part of psychology that interests you so I guess just the the ability to kind of read into situations and see more than than what you would think it is you know um i feel like ever since i i started on on the programs and things like that i have gotten a sense of understanding people better so sometimes i feel like okay maybe not this person is maybe they're not just being rude it's just maybe something happened during the day and now they're just taking it out on me and like i feel like taking that approach to everything and I don't take things in that personal anymore. Or, or like, I feel like I can connect to people better because I tend to understand them better um, by, you know, studying it. <laughs> yeah. So what school did you attend? So for my undergrad, I went to UCF, the University of Central Florida in Orlando and loved it. I love living in Orlando. And then... Uh, once I graduated, I moved to Boca Raton and I started working for an insurance company and it was fine. And then I noticed that a lot of the professionals 
in Florida. They graduated from Nova Southeastern University. And so I felt like if I went to that university, it would somehow open up all the doors to me, at least in Florida, because they have a really big network of graduates. And that's a university that they do offer undergrad programs, but they're known more for their graduate programs and you know what they do after graduation. So I went to Nova and it was all online, which worked perfect for my job schedule. And, and so, yeah, I did my master's in counseling with the concentration of ABA. So what was your day-to-day routine like during the graduate program? Was it like non-stop, non-stop studying? For sure. It was definitely non-stop. Um, since it was an online program, I feel like we didn't have, it was pretty much based on you log in, you see the video from the professor or you connect to talk to the professor. And then it was just discussion posts after discussion posts and research papers. It was a lot of writing because mm-hmm. um, I feel like somehow they needed to see whether or not you were getting the material. So every week we would have, you know, seven discussion posts and like you needed to interact with other people and connect and then the tests and the quizzes. So as far as the workload, I think it's more when you do it online versus in person. Um, but it was still, you know, it's school. It's part of being a school. So I, I try to enjoy it the most I could. <laughs> you kind of bring up a good point. If you could go back, do you wish you could have done an in-person program or are you pretty happy with the online program and the outcome that you've had? So I, I think, I think I wouldn't, um, I was in a situation where I needed to just work and, you know, in order to hit 40 hours a week, I couldn't just go to a class in, you know, in the middle of a Thursday or Thursday evenings or things like that. So I feel like the online setting really helps people to continue having a job, like a full-time job and, and not rely on, you know, aid or someone else to, to continue living pretty much financially. Um, so I, 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 I don't regret going, doing it online. Um, I do feel that in person you get to connect more with a professor. So you might get more answers out of them. Um, as far as like assignments or needing to understand more about a subject or things like that, because you could always email them, but it's never, I feel like when you, when I started the practicum, for example, um, if I had any questions about ABA, I understand that immediately after my supervisor explained it to me person to person and in the situation versus on the computer, it was just like, okay, maybe try reading this and doing that. But you know, it's not the same. I don't feel like you get it the same as when you're in person talking to them and they show you immediately like, okay, if you do this immediately right now, see the difference before when you do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because right now all my classes are on zoom, but thankfully the past few months since I started to get into the field, I've been doing a lot of zoom conferences and attending a lot of these like meetings, like through study notes, ABA, a quick Mm -hmm. plug from Instagram on there. But Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, like, the dynamic between a Zoom call learning and in-person, it's quite different. You're more – in person, you're you're almost forced to talk. Like, the teacher is right there staring at you, whereas with a Zoom call, you can, like, look away. Who knows what you're doing? You could have your phone underneath you. So Exactly. Do so you don't understand? There were so many times where I had those meetings with the professor, 
And yes, I was logged in. I was technically present, but I was working on another homework or things for another class while I was listening to them, you know? So I feel like you're definitely right as far as like you concentrate more when you're in person versus online. Exactly. Who was your supervisor during this period of time? So I had many supervisors. Um, my first supervisor was Dr. Manny Gonzalez. He used to be a professor. Well, I think he's, I don't know. He used to be a professor at NOVA. Um, and I remember taking his classes first. And honestly, I learned about it because I passed the exams and I passed the class. But it wasn't until I did the practicum and then I was under his supervision that I was like, wow, this really makes sense now. So he did great. Like, he was a great supervisor. Um, and then I had another one within Nova as well. I mean, they were all pretty great. I feel like I've learned. So I did my so I did two semesters of practicum, right? And so I was under different supervisors at those times. Um, I, I, since I was so interested in finishing the hours as quickly as I could, I would get other supervisors within the within the building to sign up for my hours if one of them was out on vacation, you know. Um, so I totally recommend students and and anybody accruing their hours to have that backup plan um, because you don't want to get stuck on you know having two weeks of no supervision because you can then count them. And it also helps because they give you different views on how to approach different situations and what to apply at different places. So I feel like the more, the merrier. Exactly. What's the one thing you remember most about both of those supervisors? Oh, man. I remember my first eye-opener uh, with Emos. Um, we were trying to teach this child to man for more with signs, right? And so we were using the toy. And I was like, okay, it's my turn, and then give it to her, and my turn, and da 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 da. But I was letting her play with it for too long of a period. And I remember uh, my supervisor saying, like, okay, I want you to literally just count to five and then take it away, and then immediately teach her how to man for more. Um, and it was honestly such an eye opener on how you can manipulate the MOs within the environment, because immediately the child got signing for more within like 10 minutes. And it, was, it wasn't, I was like, wow, like, this is insane, because I was letting her play, and it was prompted, and, you know, but it wasn't that MO. As soon as I decreased the time that she was allowed to play with it to, like, seconds, immediately the child responded in, like, money, 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 money. So I remember being one of those days that it was like, wow, I love ABA. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm sure you've had episodes like that where you're working with a client, and it's, like, nice. Like, I could teach you this. Uh, in like 10 minutes and just because I manipulated something super simple within your environment. Yeah. And that's exactly how I feel about FCT or functional communication training. It's mm -hmm. so interesting because you like, so you have the client, you've worked with them for multiple months. All right. Now you want to do FCT with them. Well, the, the fact that they can learn it so fast, so mm -hmm. it just astonishes me. It's like, wow, he's already discriminated between green and red. Like, wow, great work. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you have any tips for incoming graduate students or colleagues or colleagues? Oh man. Uh, definitely plan out your schedule. Do not procrastinate. <laughs> or even if you do procrastinate it, try to make it into your schedule, fit it into your schedule because 
at some point, you know, you feel like, okay, I got this. I have my schedule going, ta-da-da-da. and then something happens and it throws you out of the loop and then it's like chaos. Um, so definitely have a schedule and plan out also for kind of like mental health days, you know, where you don't do anything and you just relax. Um, I remember going through my graduate program and I had started a practicum and I was still working full time that I remember I moved to this new place and they were doing construction and I remember it was even due to during finals and the construction guys accidentally cut my internet uh, cable. So I remember getting home and I was like, okay, I have all of these things to do. I got to log in for a class. I got to do this paper. I have to do the materials for the client next week, da, da, da. And then I have no internet. I just started crying. Like oh. I couldn't stop crying for like a whole hour. And I was like, okay, this is a sign that I need to organize myself better and, you know, have like backup plans. Like if I have no internet, then I should go to like a Starbucks or something and not let it like get to me to that point, you know? Because I guess I was just so concentrated into like doing the practicum, the classes, the assignments, working, and then not really scheduling like a, like a, you know, rest day that after a while it just gets too much and the simpler things we just make you ball <laughs> going off that that's something i've never actually asked anyone before throughout your graduate program do you have any tips on how to study is there a certain way you read an article is there a way whenever you read a cooper book or when you're reading do you take notes do you use any specific apps active yes. recall space repetition there's a lot of things that i've heard about what about you yeah, so I am a visual learner for sure. Um, if I don't, and I'm a visual and also, I guess it's called kinesthetic learner, like you have to do it in order for you to learn it. Um, so I would take notes and then try to summarize it the best I could and then just plaster it somewhere I could see it all the time. Um, and then just study that way. Like flashcards for me, they work great because it's just a con, you know, a concise definition, and then I read it and read it and read it and read it. And honestly, I remember even during my exam, all I could think about was like the the big umbrella that it was written, and I was like, okay, this was in this side of my room, so then I remember that this was here, and so I could remember the definitions through there. So I I recommend you finding out the best way that you learn. And just stick to it. Like if you learn uh, through auditory, then just make sure that you have a lot of resources that are just auditory. Um, if you learn by reading and highlighting, then knock yourself out. Get all the highlighters, colors that you want and organize yourself that way. Um, if you're a visual learner, then do those like maps and just stick it in your wall and study that way too. Uh, figure out a way, figure out the way that you learn the best and then stick to it, honestly. Yeah, I've never really brought that up before during this podcast because there are quite a few graduate students that have asked me, like, how do I study or maybe ask my guests, like, how they study. But one thing that I found interesting that I've been doing a lot recently since the graduate program started is when I'm taking notes, rather than just writing down exactly what's on the screen, I've started to write questions. So my brain has to think. So whenever, so for example, I use this app called Notion. I will, <laughs> I'm learning about behaviorism. I'll write down what is behaviorism. Then that's what, like, instead of writing the answer and just like writing it down, I actually write what is behaviorism. And then like and under like a tog, I toggle it and I write the answer underneath it. So it's kind of interesting rather than when I read my notes, I'm just reading exactly what I saw on the screen. My brain <laughs> is actually 
I'm having to like dig deep within like my internal memory to figure out what is behaviorism, what is behavior momentum, and really break down all these, uh, just break down the science. Yeah. Yes, and, and and another tip that I will give is to try to apply it. Once you apply it to a, to a an example in real life, it'll stick to you forever. Um, you know the definitions are like MOs or SDs. Just just think about it. Okay, like when the teacher said this, and that's technically an SD or things like that. Just apply it in a way that it makes sense to you, just so that you could remember it, even as you see it in other situations. For sure. So we're mm -hmm. going to keep going. Sure. What was your biggest takeaway from school then? Um, time management was my biggest takeaway. Um, how to portray yourself in a professional manner as well was another big takeaway. I remember in, in my practicum, um, one of the teachers, they were one of the professors, uh, they they pretty much took data on us and, and said, like, you know, at the beginning of the practicum, you guys were explaining these situations in layman terms, but then now I've seen your growth, and by the end of this semester, I've seen you guys use more ABA, you know, words and, and, and things to express yourself, so that way, you know, get in the habit of when you're talking to a caregiver or a client or anything like that, uh, that you use you know, layman's term because it's our ethical duty, but as well explaining it the correct way and, you know, making sure that you're not making mistakes on what something is and what something isn't. Um, so that was one of my biggest takeaways. Growing professionally as a professional. Um, and yeah, time management for sure. It, it, it honestly, once you're out and you're working after you pass the exam, it's, it's insane the amount of paperwork that you don't think that you have to do. But it, it's all every week, every week, nonstop. <laughs> and you know, you're the first person to ever bring this up, but I've never really thought about it that way. There are so many ABA terms like behavior yes. contrast, behavioral repertoire, behavioral contract, behavior analyst, behavior. Like there's so mm -hmm. many. It's kind of interesting <laughs> to think about. Like yes. the, the list goes on and on. And not even counting that, there's so many acronyms like EIBI, DDT, DESE, yeah. FBA. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> when you study for the exam, you're going to be like, okay, I, I feel like I just read this, but it doesn't make sense of how I read it. And then you look at it and it's like, oh, it's just one word difference. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have a thesis or anything? Or did you I have a certain did... topic of interest? No, I didn't have a thesis when I graduated, but... Um, you know, I love to see ABA applied in different areas of the world, really, not just working with children on the spectrum or any developmental disorder. I feel like ABA is amazing when applied to big corporations and how to motivate people and, you know, get them to love what they're doing and learn new things. Um, the criminal aspect of it also interests me a lot. I feel like Netflix has been awesome at showing a lot of new documentaries and and it just makes you think of, okay, if this person could have done this, then it would have turned out totally different. So just being able to apply behavior concepts to to figure out someone, to me, it's super interesting. Yeah, and I believe um, there's another podcast out there. It's uh, Behavior Bitches. <laughs> 
they have. Oh, think, my God, I love them. <laughs> they're hilarious. But I think recently yeah. they just posted a podcast doing some sort of like criminal stuff. And I haven't listened in yet, but I can completely agree. I think that's pretty interesting. Yes, yes, it definitely is. They're great at breaking down the terms to for you for, to understand. Um, their study sessions are awesome, too. Yeah, and I I don't mind shamelessly plugging them because they're a huge inspiration to me starting this podcast. But they're still yeah. like I believe Leah she has she does the study notes ABA, and like it is so helpful to see it from like other perspectives because like you talked about earlier, if you have an example, then it sticks with you forever. And that's kind of what they talk about within the group. They talk about if you can say it out loud and answer a question, and explain it thoroughly, then you know it. And exactly. Like you, like it's like you bring up some very valuable points. So when you were getting into the field of applied behavior analysis, since you didn't have a thesis, I would like to talk about maybe some topics. Was there anything that really stood out to you? You're like, wow, I want to learn more about this. Like within the class period, was there times where let's say, for example, with me, if I was learning I in class, I could be learning about all the schedules of reinforcement but on the side, I may be learning about resurgence and renewal or extinction bursts and maybe those types of topics. Was there anything that really stood out to you? And you're like, man, I'm going to nerd out on this one. Oh, definitely managing maladaptive behaviors, like really aggressive behaviors. Um, and the whole concept of, of feeding. The field, I guess, of behavior analysts who know what they're doing when it comes to feeding strategies and how to deal with feeding disorders, it's so small um, that I wish I would have gotten more training on it while in school because a lot of the kiddos that we work with, they have a feeding, you know, disorder, whether they're very picky eaters or they just only eat things that are of one color, one texture. And, and you know, like we apply the strategies that we know of like scape extinction, shaping, you know, reinforcement and things like that. But it it's so slow in a sense and it works for some kids and for some other kids it's totally, you know, it, it doesn't work. So that area of, of ABA, I, I would love to get more training on and just treating feeding disorders when it's to the point of, you know, the child would starve him or herself for days. Um, just because it's the food consistency that they don't want. Definitely. And it's interesting that with ABA, there are so many feeding disorders out there, but I also find it interesting that a lot of the times during DTT or discrete child training, we use positive reinforcement a lot in the forms of food, toys, praise, but food, but there's also <laughs> feeding disorders out there, but we use food so much within our treatments. It's kind of interesting to think about when you break it down. Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting because I feel like some kids like would love I mean, I always see it. Um they would love a certain item and then I don't know where it's like I hate that item and I cannot <laughs> see it anymore. <laughs> you know? And it's 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 the same with, with foods. Like I feel like some of them, you know, at some point they were eating animal protein and then I don't know where it's like nothing. Nothing, no way. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. No, it really is because at the clinic that I work at, we do a lot of DTT. So I see, for example, I'll use goldfish as an example. Like, oh, maybe initially mm -hmm. there is an MO in place and like the child is deprived and he really wants that goldfish. Well, then we satiate mm -hmm. him with it and there's like the abolishing effect. 
So it's like, ah, yeah. like we can't yes. always give him goldfish. We need to change it up and increase his variety of little edible reinforcers. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. As far as reinforcement, you always have to make sure that you have your backup plants and, you know, not make them satiated on it. But then it's a problem when, you know, the only thing that they eat is like, I don't know, let's say mashed potatoes. And so that you can't live with mashed potatoes. So like, I need to teach you how to eat other things, but you don't. So, you know, it's, it's so hard. I, I would love to gain more insight on, on what to do when, you know, how to help them eat different things and keep reinforcing it. Because at some point, even the parents just give up too. So they end up giving in. And because if you're only eating potatoes, then I guess that's all you'll be eating because they need to eat something. It's hard. <laughs> Food science is just cool. <laughs> yes it is it is so after your graduation what was your experience like was it easy finding a job was it difficult because there's definitely a flurry of jobs out there currently yes so it was definitely easy finding a job um as an rbt and even as a vcba i feel like there's there's a really high demand for the services that we provide and so it's even difficult for some companies too, to retain um, an employee for longer periods of time because of the high demand. Um, I, I totally recommend knowing your worth, I guess, when you're trying to find a job and negotiate what are the things that you're willing to do and not willing to do as far as, you know, indirect services or, you know, free time or just plain benefits you know some some companies will offer different things to entice you but then sorry the text um and you know other companies would just be like uh, you're an independent contractor so definitely know your worth and try to do as much research on the company to see that they align with your views on how to approach things so it's important because there's a high demand you always i feel like as a behavior analyst or a technician or a system behavior analyst you always have a job uh, you just have to make sure that you do your research on the companies that they are ethical and they align to your own views exactly because there's quite a few research out there but a lot of them talk about how being a bcba i'm not a bcba yet so i don't i wouldn't know what it's like but i hear there's a lot of burnout i hear of cases where some BCBAs will have a 12-client caseload or 15-client caseload. Think about the quality of what the clients are actually receiving, though. Like, nah. Yes. Yes. No, it, it's totally correct. I feel like we uh, – I mean, I know that the board, it says, you know, you, you can have as many as you can ethically, you know, provide services, a good service, you know, quality service. Um. For me in particular, I feel comfortable carrying a, a caseload of 10 clients. Um, but I have seen other companies that they do 20 clients or like 18 clients. And to me, that's impossible. Like, how can you divide yourself every week to support your technicians, to support the client, to support the parents with that many cases? It's, it's, it's almost impossible. Yeah. So kind of going off that. So let's say, for example, a BCBA has 20 clients. They don't have any interns. There's no one really helping them with the treatment programs. You have the RBTs, and they're only doing the implementing, and they're just doing exactly what the BCBA wants. 20 clients. That's so That's many, it. especially if you want to have, like, quality, effective treatment. Like, ah! Yes. 
it's, impo- it's honestly impossible because even with a caseload of 10, I feel like I come home from work and I'm still doing paperwork and materials and updating programs. And it's just impossible with that amount of clients. You, some clients are just going to sleep up and they're not going to be getting the service that they deserve. Exactly. And like, that's not even including like supervision. Like if you have to, I don't know what the minimum percentage is, but maybe five, 7%. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to do 7% with all of your clients and all the RPTs that are with them, there's no way there's no way oh my gosh that just stresses me out thinking about it but you bring up such a valuable point because there are so many jobs out there so you should do your research you should see what that company provides you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so kind of going off of that where you work if you don't mind where are you working at now um i work at a company i learned so much in that company I took um, I did my supervised hours with them the VCBAs that I worked under as an RBT amazing uh, they taught me so much of ABA applied to the real world and not in a clinic setting because as a practicum I did I went to a clinic so having that experience of running net and really manipulating the environment as it is for the child to their benefit was to me insanely beneficial for for my learning. Um, Where I work, they really take the time to teach the RBT. So there's the the trainings every two weeks um, to support them in any way. Uh, they they also have a designated person just for training. So if you feel like as an RBT, okay, like I need more training in PECS or I need more training in learning expressive versus receptive, that person is always available to them to provide that training. So it's it's amazing. I I feel like it's a smaller company, so that gives them the chance to really focus on quality care and uh, quality training too which is important. I, I think it's important. Exactly. How long did you say you've been there so far? Uh, for three years, since 2017. 17? Now we're... Oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, no, no, no. Since 2000, uh, 2017. Was that when you also passed your test, I'm assuming? or? No, I actually passed my exam last year. Oh, so I'm, I'm fairly new. Yes. <laughs> Man, there's still... Are you so... In your opinion, are you the type of behavior analyst where if you were feeling like you were burning out, would you speak up and say something before it's too late? Or are you one of those individuals where you're just going to let it build on and build on? Because I don't know how I'd be because I'd become personally, I may be a little nervous to like speak up, you know? So I think that that's where you should do the research on like the company values uh, for example, the company where I'm working now, where I did like that rest of my supervision hours, they were they're always very open. And it, since it wasn't a massive company, you always were in touch with your supervisors, with the owner of the company, uh, with the trainer of the company. So even as you were feeling overwhelmed with your caseloads, I feel like you could directly talk to a person, to the your boss, to like the owner or you know the clinical director. And they would help you immediately. So it it hasn't gotten to the point where I've been like, okay, I'm super overwhelmed. I won't want to do my job again. I'm going to look for another uh, company to work for. So this is where I feel like a lot of people should just do the research as far as the company values before you start working with them so that you don't get to that burnout point. Um, I think that it's important for companies to offer to their employees an open door 
policy. That way you don't let them build up that resentment or like overwhelm um, to the point of like, I need to quit because I can't handle it anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And what's one thing you wish you knew before you started where you're working at now? Mm, I guess how volatile the field is as far as for the some employees. Um, I remember when I started working on the field, uh, you were allowed to be an independent contractor. And so it's, it's really difficult because I feel like sometimes when the client cancels, then for the RBT, you pretty much don't get paid for those hours. Right. So I think it's, 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 I wish the field as a whole will make it so that the technicians are also saved when situations like this occur. You know what I mean? Um, unfortunately, I guess that's just how the field is because all the companies are saying the same thing. Like if you can't build, then we can't really have uh, someone working, you know, for the company. So I wish I knew because I, I, as an RVT, I remember I had some periods where, you know, some weeks I would have, the 40 hours and some weeks I would only have 10 because of like spring break. So no sessions or the kids will go out on vacation for months at a time for over the summer. Um, so I wasn't aware of that until I was in the field working. And so there were some times that I would be like, okay, mom, I need your help because I didn't work this many hours. So now, you know what I mean? I feel like that was something I wish I knew before getting to it. Because as a practicum, you just flat out don't get paid because you're accruing your hours. So then I still had my uh, job that it was pretty stable, nine to five, you know. So when I made the leap of like, okay, I'm going to do ABA full and then clients cancel and you're like, oh, what do I do now? <laughs> so if you don't mind... Do you mind if we go yes. into that? I would kind of, I kind of want to know like how COVID is affecting where you work and you don't have to answer it, but I've been asking a lot of people that recently because I hear different stories yeah. every time I ask. So, I mean, as far as I know, I've seen a lot of the companies approaching it is um, it's up to the caregiver and the therapist, whether or not they would like to continue working. Um, and so they're accommodating the people who still want to work and who still want to have sessions to those cases, pretty much. Um, but in we are considered essential as of right now, as long as we are taking the precautions necessary for it. Um, I know that it's kind of limbo because at some point they are going to just tell us like nobody can work and and we have to respect that. You know, I feel like it's the the over all wellness of the client and your therapist is important uh, before billing pretty much, you know, man. Yeah. You know, that's kind of, it's a oh, oh, keep going. No, no, no. It's a difficult position because I, you know, it's, it's, it's tough for businesses, not just for the field. It's for every business. I feel like I, I will be so sad seeing um, if some of the local places that I love to eat around me close because of, of, you know, not being able to remain open. So I, I, sometimes I bring this question up. It's completely random. What are your favorite restaurants where you're living now? You talk about food. So let's talk about some food. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I love this pizzeria. It's called Michael's pizzeria near Deerfield. They make this pizza that it doesn't even have the red sauce. It's like a garlic olive oil 
and cheese with basil and it's amazing. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> end this podcast being a little bit happier. Is uh, Michael still open? Is it essential? Sounds like it. Well, in Florida, they're allowing the restaurants to be open as far as if, uh, as long as they only do takeout or, or delivery. Have you ordered Michael's yet? No, not yet. Oh, come on. I have to. Gotta do it. It's pizza. It's pizza. So I'm trying to, you know, not overly gain weight <laughs> at home. The COVID-19. You know what 19 stands for, right? 19 pounds. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so back, no. back to what we were talking about. Do you have any tips for possibly those looking for a job as like a BCBA? Do your research for the company. Make sure that they align to your ethical and core views as far as how many cases you could have. Um, and making sure that there is that support too. Um, as a recent certificate, I guess, one of my biggest uh uh, one of the main important things that I wanted to make sure that I had for while working for a company is the ability to be trained. Uh, you know, even even if you just pass the exam, that doesn't make you uh, overall, you know, know it all. You know, there are some things that I encounter as a supervisor, and they're like, "Wow, how can I approach this in an ethical way? How can I approach this to discuss with a parent um, and to even teach a technician?" You know. So I feel like having that training side, even as a VCBA, it's key. It's honestly immensely important um, to have in a company. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And for you personally, what's your long-term plans in the field of behavior analysis? So I would love to just learn right now, gain as much knowledge as I can on any type of behavior, feeding, uh, anything and then eventually I would love to just open like a consulting company um I feel like a lot of the times we do work with the parents and it's it's mandatory that we teach the parents the strategies and things like that but for the parents that don't have necessarily a child on the spectrum or a specific developmental disorder but they still have behavioral products for the most part the insurance companies will not pay for those services so I feel like having a company that it just focuses on teaching them how to handle certain behaviors without having that constraint of, you know, I need to see you so many hours a week and, and things like that, just to give them a broader information on it. Um, that's my goal, to have a consulting company for, for caregivers. Awesome. So we are going to go ahead and start wrapping some things up. Okay. So the final question I always ask everyone is what advice do you wish you could have told yourself when you were getting into the field? Or is there something you would have done differently? Mm, have someone that you can talk to, uh, even as a therapist or just a friend that you can confide in, uh, because things in grad school will get overwhelming. Um, and, you know, all the knowledge and things that you have to do will be overwhelming at some times. Uh, so it's important to have someone that you can just confide in and dump dump it all onto someone, you know what I mean? Um, and time management on time, you know, plan out uh, a rest day and commit to it and make sure that the other days you're, you have a plan for what you're supposed to be doing and you know, how much time you wanna spend on something just so that you don't, 
become lazy, I guess, or distracted when you're trying to, to when you need to be concentrating on, on a topic. Mm-hmm. And is there anything that you wish you would have done differently? Um, maybe began doing sessions uh, outside of the clinic sooner. I feel like that's when I learned the most uh, on, on application-wise. Uh, because at the clinic, everything is very contrived and, you know, very clean cut. Uh, but when you get to the home sessions, it's it all sorts out, goes out the window because you have all these independent variables that you were not accounting for while in the clinic. So definitely what I would have started working at home or at school settings sooner just to be able to control those variables in time and not be taken you know, as a curveball from it. 100%. So, Laura, where can listeners find more about you and your dissemination efforts? Are there any social media platforms they can find you on and find more about what you're doing? Yes, so you can find me at Your Behavioral Guide. Um, I will try to share as many strategies that you could apply in your everyday life um, and just try to connect with more people in the field and, and outside of it. Hopefully get them to know about what ABA is and get them passionate as we all are about our field. Well, sounds great, Laura. It was a pleasure of a time talking to you today. You too. Have a great day. Yeah, thanks for coming on the Behavior Trap Podcast. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Laura. It was a really good conversation, and she brought up some valuable points that I've never thought about before. Don't forget, you can follow the Behavior Trap podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying these podcasts, then give this podcast a five-star rating on wherever you're listening to this. Some positive reinforcement goes a long way. Looking forward to talking to more everyday behavior analysts. See ya!